Hello and welcome to the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. My name is Brian Wallace. This is Season 2, Episode 27. We're going to be covering (laughs) atherosclerosis and dyslipidemia this week. Okay, so one of the things I wanted to show you right off the bat, and one of the things I get feedback on occasionally, um, but it certainly uh, rolls off my back without problem, is my pronunciation of things. Certainly, I mispronounce all kinds of things. I mispronounce drug names in particular, uh, certain diseases without question. Um, but I easily could have edited out the opening here and gone back and fixed it and made it so that you never knew that that happened and made it made me look a whole lot better. Uh, maybe not a whole lot better, but <laughs> but better. Um, and one of the things I want to point out to you, and one of the reasons I do this show, and one of the ways that I teach, is I want you to see that not everyone is perfect. We get caught up in medicine thinking everyone knows more than we do, um, and that's true, but only to a certain point. I'm noticing more and more. You know, you see surgeons ask students questions in the OR. And the students get all nervous and they think the surgeons know so much. And the surgeons do know a lot. But they also have the benefit of having asked the same question to a thousand students before you and seeing their reactions. They've played this scenario out thousands and thousands of times. You've never played it out before. You've never had it before. So it becomes a whole new scary experience for you. The same thing with your your professors, for the most part. They've given these lectures thousands of times. They come across as knowing everything because they know their little world really, really well. Now, I'm not saying they're not super smart, and I'm not saying they're not really good at what they do. What I am saying is that you're going to get there. You're going to be fine. You're going to reach the point where you know a lot about what you're doing. For me, in this case, I work 100% in the operating room. I am no longer seeing patients in an office setting. I used to do that, uh, but I'm in a... But not a little while ago, I switched positions, and now I'm, I'm first assisting in the OR. So I talk to patients uh, very infrequently. Uh, I'm on the floors a little bit. I see them in the morning before surgery, but I am no longer diagnosing. I am no longer uh, ordering, well, you know, in general, I'm not ordering tests. I'm not doing a whole lot of that kind of stuff. I'm much more a physical hands-on first assistant in the operating room. There are other aspects to my job, but for the most part, that's what I do. Medicine is not my my thing. I don't do a lot of medicine. I write very few medications. I usually write for Ansef and Percocet. Those are those are those are the things that I do really well with. Everything outside of that are things I'm familiar with, things I understand, things I can learn, things I can work with. But certainly I don't want to come across to you as if I know everything about every single subject. That would be ridiculous. I can't possibly know the entire NCCPA blueprint backwards and forwards. That's not what this is about. It's simply not realistic for me to present that to you, nor is it realistic for you to think that that, that, that's the case. What I am good at, what this show is designed for, is getting you to pass your test. Pulling out the information from the notes, that's key. Pulling out the key terms, pulling out the stuff that you need and working it down to a point that you'll understand it. That means some of the stuff is not going to be perfect. It means sometimes there's going to be mispronunciations. It means since I am a person doing this at at this stage on my own, 
that in the emails there will be things that are misspelled that is going to happen and the my feeling on all of that is it's just fine and i have no problem with it because the goal here is to keep moving to cover the important information and get it out to you to go over key information to make sure we point out things that really matter and to get hung up in the minutia of misspellings or mispronunciations now of course is it easier for you to understand if i pronounce things right is it uh, stick in your head. Maybe it sticks in your head better if I mispronounce it, though. <laughs> you know that thought has occurred to me as well. That it forces you to pause and listen a little harder with mispronunciations that you then have to pay attention and think about. It. You can't just slip by. Um, so that's occurred to me as well. Either way, the point is, pay attention as you're going through your own material and don't think that you can't get there. Don't put people up on pedestals and think that those are unattainable feats. For you, remember that the people teaching you, the people working with you, are experts. But they're experts usually in a very narrow field over over lots and lots of years. That's something certainly attainable to just about everybody out there. Um, so please consider that as you're learning and getting information from people and being nervous about how much more they know than you and what they can do and that you can't do, and, and, and how much they know, and how much you don't know, and how much there is still to learn, and how much you've already forgotten. There's so much material that you're going to wind up focusing on something and getting really good at that. But to know all of it all of the time is unrealistic. I guess I can, that's probably enough for there. So let's jump into our uh, priming questions. Um, we're doing atherosclerosis and dyslipidemia this week. We're going to be finishing up cardiology, I think, with the next show. I think this will be the, the this one and then one more. So let's jump right in to our priming questions. Do males or females have more atherosclerosis? I got to stop just saying it and find a different word for myself. Um, who has more, more frequently has atherosclerosis? What's the most important secondary cause of dyslipidemia? What's the most important secondary cause of dyslipidemia? What's considered a normal level for triglycerides? What are we shooting for? What's the goal here? Triglycerides. When talking about HDL and LDL, generally speaking, we want one to go up and one to go down. Which is which? When talking about HDL and LDL, generally speaking, we want one to go up and one to go down. Which is which? All right, keep an eye out for those as we move along through today's show. So we're going to begin again with atherosclerosis, and then I'm going to try not to say that word uh, again at all throughout this show. Uh, the components are lipid disposition, fibrosis, calcification, plaques in the intima of medium and large blood vessels. And it's important to note that this is the number one cause of cardiac-related death and disability. So it's a big deal. Risk factors here are obvious things. Most of us are well aware of at this stage, hypertension dyslipidemia, which we'll get to shortly, smoking, diabetes, advancing age, family history is a big one, and then again, males to females, four to one, uh, it's four to one here. So if you didn't get that, you've got it now. Clinical presentation, well, uh, most of these are not going to show up with any symptoms, right? If you have plaques in your arteries, uh, most people aren't going to know it. So that's going to be number one. The most It's going to be found on routine medical exam kind of thing. If they do are so bad that the 
the plaques are causing a problem, then you've got ischemia, right? Because it's blocking blood flow. Uh, those plaques built up in the blood vessels are going to block blood flow. So what happens with ischemia in different organ systems? Well, if we're talking about the brain, you have cognitive dysfunction, right? If we're talking about the kidneys, you have renal failure. If we're talking about cardiac arteries having plaques, you get chest pain and heart attacks. In the intestines, we, t- we get abdominal pain and go on from there. So understand that these are end sort of end game <laughs> symptoms, but there are symptoms associated with it. One physical exam finding you may find uh, would be a brewery over the particular artery which is being occluded. Labs and studies, uh, ultrasound with a Doppler to tell blood flow. An ankle brachial index is a, is a good one. This compares the blood pressure in the upper versus lower extremities. And this can be used to determine the patency of the arteries for patients with peripheral vascular disease. So what you're going to do is you take the blood pressure on an arm and then you take it on the calf and you compare them and you see if there's a difference between them. And there really shouldn't be. Uh, an angiogram is another way. This visualizes the arteries, arteries under x-ray. Um, so here what they do is they in, inject a radio-opaque dye into the patient, and then that dye will travel through the blood vessels. And when you take an, an image, an x-ray, or um, fluoroscopy of that patient, you can see how that dye travels. And then you can see the pinched-off vessels, the, where they're occluded, where they narrow down, that sort of thing. So it gives you a lot of inf- really good information there. Treatments. Generally speaking, we're talking about decreasing the risk factors here. So controlling blood pressure, better control of the lipid panel, a reduction in total cholesterol, even in those diagnosed are ed- already with coronary artery, artery disease, correlates with a reduction in total mortality. So big deal here. We need to get cholesterol under control. We need to get blood pressure under control. Quitting smoking is a huge one. Getting diabetes under control is also a huge one. And then we move on to medical treatment. So the patients may need a blood thinner. So aspirin, 81 milligrams or 325 milligrams daily. And then treating the dyslipidemia. And I don't want to get into that here because we're about to do dyslipidemia. And I'm going to let that go for just a minute. Surgery uh, and arterectomy. So going in and fixing the problem surgically or putting in a stent and ballooning it open. Next, we have dyslipidemia. This is, uh, so let's go through what we're, sort of what we're talking about here. Three different things that you need to know about, which is low-density lipoprotein, LDL, high-density lipoprotein, HDL, and triglycerides. We're going to keep it just to there for right now. So LDL, and, and so earlier I asked the question, which of these do we generally want higher? Which of these do we generally want lower? Lower than they are, not necessarily lower than, than against each other, but lower than they are. We'll get into the actual numbers in a little bit. But I think it's key for you to understand and memorize which of these should go be going up in patients and which of these should be going down. LDL, somebody wrote this in a long time ago. I can't remember who it was, uh, but it works good for me. LDL uh, has an L in it for lousy and HDL has an H in it for happy. We want LDL to be going down generally and we want HDL to be going up generally. Again, this is not across the board. It's not for everyone, but that's just a good way to think about it. Um, and increased LDL correlates with an increased risk of heart disease, and its increased HDL correlates with a decreased risk of heart disease. Triglycerides, an increase in triglycerides is correlated to an increased risk of heart disease. We want triglycerides to go down as well. Again, in general. 
causes and correlations. So I was doing some research for this particular show and I was going through the Merck manual. It's one of the sources that I use. And this is a quote directly from there. The most important secondary cause in developed countries is a sedentary lifestyle with excessive dietary intake of saturated fat, cholesterol, and trans fats. So I thought that was pretty powerful. Um, just, just a really bold <laughs> statement. Not that it's not true or anything, but really just a, a, a black and white, um, hugely important is lifestyle activities, um, sitting around and eating. Obviously, genetics plays a major role. Uh, diabetes can play a major role, liver or kidney disease, hypothyroidism, alcoholism, and then there are lots of medications that can also affect your cholesterol. I'm not going to go into all of them here. I just, I don't think it's relevant uh, to get that far down into the weeds for this particular case. Clinical presentation. Again, a lot of this is going to be asymptomatic. They're not really going to come in with much, right, for dyslipidemia. Um, not something you're, you're, you're going to see. You may be able to tell by their weight, that kind of thing. Um, and by all of the other factors, like the, like the, um, their weight, their diabetes, their high blood pressure, all of those things will correlate over to dyslipidemia, but you're not going to get anything that's, uh, presenting symptom of clinic of <laughs> dyslipidemia. The one thing that comes up, um, where'd it go? Oh, the one thing that comes up from time to time is, uh, xanthomas, which are possible, but more than half of people with them have a normal lipid profile. So not necessarily helpful. And as I was going through this particular, going over the notes for this particular show, I didn't realize, and maybe I just missed it. I always thought xanthomas were just the yellow plaques above the eyelids. I didn't realize they can be all over the body. That seems to be the one that always stands out is the, the bilateral um, inner eyelid area, uh, yellow plaques. But as going through this, you can definitely get them in other places. I thought that was just something new to me. Uh, and again, I'm not sure how useful that little piece of information is in general uh, because it's not a very specific finding, but just something I wanted, <laughs> that I thought was interesting. Um, so you should be looking for this on routine screening should begin at 35 for men and 45 for women. And then you're also going to be looking for signs of cardiovascular disease or uh, coronary artery disease. If patients have... Uh, family history or signs of coronary artery disease or other issues, then you can, you're going to start that screening earlier, obviously. Uh, 25 and 35 is very reasonable. There's also questions about testing kids. There's a lot of discussion about this now and how to handle that situation. But I believe for right now, the the, the routine, the normal situation is you, be, you really begin at 35 and 45. Although I know that, for example, where I work, they started doing uh, biophysical profiles, I, th I think is what they call them for our insurance policies. And last year, everybody had to get a lipid panel done. And that was just part of the, the screening to be part of the insurance plan. Uh, so obviously, all this stuff is up in the air and changing. But I think for you, just knowing those numbers will be sufficient. Labs and studies, this is where we do are going to get into the weeds a little bit. I do think you should memorize these numbers. A lot of times I don't think you should hold on to numbers like this and people will say, and I can't tell you for sure, I don't remember off the top of my head right now, um, these numbers are on the exam. They do give you a ton of lab values on the exam. My feeling on that is you want to be using those lab values as, um, what would you say, as a, a refresher. You don't want to have to rely on them. You don't want to, it's almost like, using a calculator for your multiplication tables. 
You want to be able to check your work if you're unsure about something, if there's something really complicated or a couple step process. But if you're sitting down on on a test and it's three times five and six times two, and you got to use a calculator for all of that, you're not thinking, you're not using your brain, your brain's not making good connections, you're focused on your calculator. It's a mistake. Yes, I know that it's maybe feel easier, but in general, it's a mistake. There are certain baseline information you should be able to pull right out of your head. You should not need to be flipping back and forth. And the other reason for that is time. It takes time to go over to that other page, find the exact lab you're looking for, and then pull it back over. Most people get screwed up on this test, or not most people, a lot of people get screwed up on this test with time. So to me, that's a big waste of time. These are numbers you should be able to memorize. There's not a ton of things I think you have to memorize as far as numbers go across the whole NCCPA blueprint. I think these are on that list though. And I don't think it's that complicated. So I would put some time and energy into memorizing these. And the other thing is, it boosts your confidence when you see these questions and you know this information and you're not sort of trying to figure it out in the middle of a question. Even if they give it to you in the question, you just feel very comfortable and confident with it. And that makes a big difference too. All right, so serum lipid profile. This is a fasting uh, test, so make sure your patients are fasting. Total cholesterol optimal is below 200, below 200. We're going to run through these numbers. You're obviously not going to remember them just from this experience. You're going to need to go back through this a couple of times. Obviously, you can find it over on the website, or if you pretty much Google uh, lipid profile, serum lipid profile and normal values, it'll pop right up if you don't already have a cheat sheet made up of this. Borderline for total cholesterol is 200 to 239, and high is over 240. HDL uh, low is less than 40. High is greater than 60. LDL, optimal is below 100. There's a whole bunch of different things here, like near optimal is 100 to 129. Borderline is 130 to 159. High is 160 to 189. Very high is over 190. You know, how much of that do you need to know? That's a little bit vague. Certainly know that less than 100 is what we want. And greater than 190 is a real problem. Um, how much of that in between to memorize? Do your best, but I, I, I wouldn't kill myself on that. Triglycerides, normal is less than 150. Borderline is 150 to 199. High is 200 to 500, 499. And then very high is greater than 500. Same thing there. Treatments, non-pharmacological. Let's start there. Reduce dietary fat to 30% and saturated fat to less than 10%. Uh, we talk a lot about the Mediterranean diet. Increase in anaerobic exercise helps to increase HDL levels. Uh, weight reduction is helpful. You know, So like we said, all of these things are diet and exercise controlled, at least a big portion of them. There's a big chunk of, you know, and a lot, a lot of studies are showing that it, there's a, a lot that's genetic, but certainly we do have some control over this. So you want to control the things you can control. Medications, 81 milligrams um, or 325 milligrams of aspirin daily for those with elevated LDLs is recommended. Statins are obviously the big, the big one here, um, 3-hydroxy-3-methylglutarol-coenzyme-A reductase inhibitors, HMG-CoA inhibitors. Um, these inhibit the rate-limiting step in cholesterol production. Examples include lovastatin, pravastatin, simvastatin, and atorvastatin. And obviously, there are lots of those. And the most common side effect here is myositis. That'll be the one that you get, I would assume, on a test question, is that muscle pain. And it's a big deal. So please, if you have a patient who has that issue, it needs to be addressed immediately but that's certainly a big deal. So know that side effect. Lots of people on statins. You just want to be aware of that one because it's an easy thing to get right. Postmenopausal estrogen replacement helps lower LDL and raise HDL. Niacin is effective, but may cause flushing. That's another one that just jumps out as a key 
a key term, key idea, because it's just so easy to write a test question on. It's not that I don't think it's super important, but it's so easy to write a test question on. So niacin is effective. It may cause flushing and is not well tolerated. Uh, bile acid binding resins like cholestyramine and cholestipol. You can see them on the website if you want to pronounce them for yourselves. Uh, fibric acid derivatives, gemfibrozole and phenofibrate are two other possibilities. Again, I'm not going to go into super detail about how all this stuff works. Just know that those are on the list uh, for treating this. Great. So one of the things I wanted to stop and talk about just for a minute today before we sign off is our study tip, which isn't exactly going to be a study tip. It's going to be a question I, I got like four times yesterday. So I want to answer it here. Although I replied to all the people who sent it in and I'm pretty sure I, well, I've answered it before in the emails, but I want to send it out to make sure everybody gets this. I get the question a lot about which recertification exam to take, which pan read to take. And there are three, four of them. I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but there are a couple of different versions of the test. Uh, it doesn't matter exactly because my answer is the same no matter what they are. I think it's emergency, um, there's surgery, there's adult med, and there's primary med. Um, again, it, it doesn't matter if that's not exactly right or if there are others. And people often will write into me and say, hey, you know, which one are you taking? I just went to go sign up for my test. I didn't realize there were choices. I'm freaking out because I've only done dermatology. And is that is that adult medicine? Is that primary medicine, which is better for me? Or I've only been in orthopedics. Do I do surgery? And the, the only answer I can give you, the only advice I can give and what I give to those people is I can just tell you my story and what I chose to do and what I'm thinking about for the future. Step one, or the first part of the story, is I signed up for my test well, I think it's five years ago now, four or five years ago, I had to sign up for my exam, my PANRI, and I'm in surgery, right? That's all I've ever done since I graduated. So I've done no primary care. I've done no adult medicine. I've done no ER. So what do you do? Do you sign up for the surgery one or do you sign up for the primary care one, the normal PANRI? And to me, I, I, I wasn't sure, right? So I didn't know what to do. I'm in a little bit different situation because I don't just do one specialty at this point. I'm in every specialty. I do plastics. I do ENT. Uh, I do orthopedics. I do C-sections. I do um, whatever. I do lots of different surgeries. I work with, with general surgeons. So I see a lot of different things. I, I cover a lot of different areas. I'm not quite as narrowed down as a lot of people are in surgery. So some of the concerns are, would you recognize things like I remember on my my so <laughs> let me not get ahead of myself so I decided to choose the surgery test and I thought that was a really good choice for me because of all the different experiences that I had I thought my 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 knowledge base would really lend towards that really well about halfway through the exam I decided I was a total moron that this was a t absolute disaster that there's no way I should have taken the, the surgery test that next time when I failed I would be taking the primary care test. Because how do you study for the surgery test? There's nothing out there specifically to study for the surgery test, right? It's all sort of the primary care. And yes, it, there is some surgical information on that, but not very much. I mean, you could see even just from today's notes, um, the answers are surgery. You know, the treatment is surgery. You don't go into the specifics of the surgery. You just talk, say, basically, we're going to put a balloon or we're going to put a stent in or they're going to do this or that. Um, but we don't go into the specifics of the surgery very much on the NCCPA blueprint it just isn't what we cover. So to, to talk about surgery from that aspect, it's a little bit weird to study for. Um, so I was freaking out. I decided that this was a total, absolute nightmare, total disaster because I was getting images of things I had never seen before. Like I could kind of recognize them, 
I think one was a staghorn kidney stone and I, I was able to recognize it, but I don't really do kidney stuff. I don't really do, um, I'm just not really in that department. I don't do urology a little bit here and there. So, and a couple of general surgery questions that I recognized and I knew what they were talking about, but I don't do a lot of that. So I was really struggling with those departments. The end result was after all that uh, hand wringing and freaking out, my scores were came back very high. I think they were as high or higher than any that I had previously had. Now, obviously, some of that is I've been doing this show, so that helps me a lot. But I think a lot of it is you get things right that you don't realize you got right. Your brain works very well without your participation sometimes. Um, so I think if you let it work and you're working it in your area, it makes a big difference. I think there were probably questions on post-op care and different things like that that I naturally got right. And I think we focus a lot when we're in there taking the exam on the really hard things, the things we know we got wrong, the things we're not sure about. And I think we don't focus on the things that we got right, the things that were easier. So when we walk out of the building, we remember the 10, 15, 20% that were super hard, but we don't remember the 10, 20, 30% that were really easy or that we think we got right, we're not sure, but really we did get right because we, we knew it. We just don't have the confidence that we knew it but our brain could handle it and knew what was going on. So I say all that to say, I don't know what I'm going to do this time. <laughs> I could actually register now. I think this is my fifth year. And I've thought a little bit about which exam I would take. And I, I'm probably leaning toward primary care this year or this time. I don't know if I'm going to do it this year. Uh, probably leaning toward primary care this time because I will do a, a lot more studying in that direction. But I, I don't have a good answer for you. I don't know which one's better, which one's easier. And I don't have a good argument for one versus the other. Again, I think I was a great candidate for the surgery one because I have multiple areas of, of experience and not just one specific specialty. That's what's sort of scary about the surgery one. So it's going to be a lot up to you uh, in the end. But I, I really think for me this time around, I'm leaning toward primary care. And that's probably what I'm going to do. All right, let's talk about finishing up our questions here. Do males or females have more atherosclerosis? Males, three to one, three to one. Although, uh, nope, I just went back and looked. I messed it up in the notes here. It's four to one. So we have quite a bit, and that may be just a discrepancy in the two different sources I may have used in putting the questions together. Uh, but the gist of it is males have significantly more uh, atherosclerosis than females. What's the most important secondary cause of dyslipidemia? A sedentary lifestyle and diet. What is considered a normal level for triglycerides? What's our targets here? Less than 150. When talking about HDL and LDL, generally speaking, we want one to go up and one to go down. Which is which? HDL up and LDL down. Remember, HDL happy, more of that. LDL lousy, less of that. Great, so that wraps up today's show. I heard from a lot of people this week who had passed their exams. Congratulations. Uh, even if you don't pass, please reach out to me. We definitely have some things to talk about if you don't. Good luck to anybody taking their exam this week. Uh, I have had a great response to people signing up for the email list. You can do that if you just to the number 33444, you text the word PA exam, all in one word, PA exam to the number 33444. That'll get you registered and sign up for the email list and get you started on a path of 
doing better in general. Uh, like I said, I put out tons of information there. Um, every single day, something you can, actionable stuff, things you can take away, things you can get started working on, uh, things to improve your studying, things to improve your job searches, your rotations, all of that goes into the uh, email list. So definitely start checking that out. Also, something else that the email list is going to get ahead of everybody else on the podcast and everywhere, and, and the rest of the community, I am seriously considering uh, starting up a new subset com- community here with a little bit deeper information. Uh, the, the podcast is great, but it's a little bit limiting in what I can cover and how I cover it. Uh, I want to start putting together some videos. In fact, I have started putting together some videos on um, specific topics that I think need to be do- go into a little bit deeper, like murmurs, for example. We just covered that on the podcast, but I wanted to do more about specifically test answering test questions based on murmurs and how to get those right every time. So I started putting together some videos. It is taking It does take a lot of time to do those videos, a little longer than I was hoping, but um, they've come together really, really well. And I also want to make a, an area where I can give people a little bit more personal attention. I always get requests for that and I have to turn people down right now. I want to make a way that I can help those people a little bit more. Um, so keep your eyes peeled for that. It'll probably be coming at the end of February is my guess as of right now. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And But if you are on the email list, you will certainly be the first ones to find out. I'll announce it to the podcast listeners uh, a bit later, just the way it works. The show's only every two weeks. uh, And usually I get excited about this kind of stuff and can't not share it. So I'll put it in a wind up in the email list uh, well before it winds up on the podcast. So I would definitely go over, uh, hop on there, make sure that you are aware of everything that's going on here. If you find it useful, helpful, and uh, and I can't imagine that you won't. (laughs) So... Uh, Take care. Good luck if you have your exam next week, and I will talk to you soon. Take care. Good luck.